0: Well, good morning, gentlemen. Bright and early on a Thursday morning. No place I'd rather be than right here. You know, I've uh, had the opportunity to invite several friends to come to Summit. And when I tell them it's 6.30 in the morning on Thursday mornings, they kind of look at me like, man, what are you doing that early? Getting up. To go study God's words, what I'm doing. I want to... Remind you of a little verse we continue to come to at the start of every summit. It's found in the book of Ezra. Ezra 7.10. And it says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. And that is the, the verse, gang, that we continue to look to and go, hey, why are we here? What are we doing rising early to gather as men to learn God's word? And it's really Three purposes. We want to learn God's word, just as Ezra did. But we don't want to just learn it to become smarter sinners. We want to figure out how we can live it out and live a life that's pleasing to our Lord. And not just live it out, but to take that and then to lead other men in a way in which they too can experience the joy of having a right relationship with the Lord. So I'm excited that all of you are here this morning, we're going to spend each week about 20 minutes And here is a large group learning God's word, going over what we studied. And then we're going to give you an opportunity to break into small groups. And you'll break into a small group. And that's where the rubber meets the road, if you will. That's where we're able to actually talk about the so what of all the great truths we're going to learn uh, from our large time discussion together. And talk about how then are we to apply what it is that we just talked about. And then we'll also be able to encourage one another and pray for one another as we meet the challenges ahead of us in the week, as we have opportunity to lead other men. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to jump into an overview of the book of Romans. Always love getting week one. Hey, Blake, why don't you summarize Romans for us in a good 10 minutes? All right? So I'm going to do my best, and I certainly need God's prayer, and I ask you to join me. All right? Well, Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the example that Ezra set, that he not only studied your word, Lord, but he lived it out, and he was a leader in his community to have um, eternal impact on the lives of other men. I pray, Lord, the same would be true of us. I pray, Father, that you would bless our efforts today as we look at your word, as we're encouraged by the fellowship of other men. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would prompt us throughout today in this week, that we could lead in our community, in our workplace, in our home, that, Father, when others look at us, they would say, there is something different about that man. I pray, Father, that we would be ambassadors for Christ, as Paul calls us to be. And I pray that um, today you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, exactly for what you intend. And we pray all this in the name of the one who took our place on the cross, that we could experience life. Amen. Well, as you know, we are going to jump into the book of Romans. Martin Luther once said about Romans, he said, It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it, word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. What a great quote to describe the book of Romans. I have personally have studied Romans uh, dozens of times. I've read the book all the way through in one sitting. I've studied it um, carefully, verse by verse, several times in my life. And I'm telling you, every time I come to this book, in preparation again for today, every time I come to it, I see how true what Luther's words were. And I believe that if this is your first time to ever look at the book of Romans, or it's your hundredth time to look at the book of Romans, you're going to be blessed. And I want to encourage you to stick with us over these next several weeks. And to own the book of Romans. I'm going to give you an overview today so that you can see where we're going. My goal today is to set the table, if you will. My wife and I had an opportunity to go and eat at a really nice restaurant in Dallas not too long ago. And you know what distinguishes a really nice restaurant from one that's kind of just average? You know why you pay so much money at really nice restaurants? Because it takes about 10 guys to clear the table just so you can get ready to eat. Because when you walk up to the table, there's like three plates stacked on one another. There's like six wine glasses just right when you sit down. And then when you sit down after you see this big presentation, what do they do? They pick up all those plates, which are just for show, right, to prepare the big meal for you. And my hope is, gang, is that I can set the table for you such that when you come to the book of Romans, you will know, hey, we're about to eat a feast. This is a book, gang, that if you can understand the truths of this book, then you will understand, gang, the core truth of your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this is the summit, if you will, of Scripture and all of its truth. It's here that Paul says the the righteousness of God has been revealed, and so we're going to dive into the Book of Romans. Romans, as you know, was written by a man named Paul, whose name was once Saul. And I want to encourage you to write down Acts chapter nine and at some time this week to remind yourself of who this. This man, Paul, really was. Long before he wrote Romans, he was a persecutor of the church. He was the terrorist in the church. It was his job, his mission, his aim in life to uh, terrorize those of the faith. But then in Acts chapter 9, he is met by the Son of God and His whole world turns upside down and this man named Saul becomes Paul. And the one who once persecuted the church is now preaching the very message of freedom and salvation in Christ. The book was written during Paul's third missionary journey, which is just the book of Acts, you know, is a historical book that follows right after the Gospels. And um, it centers first around Peter and then a couple of chapters It centers around Philip, and then the latter part of the whole book is around Paul and his missionary journeys. And so this was written a little bit later in Paul's life. He writes to the book of Rome, the church in Rome, a city he had never been to before. And he wants to make sure that all the Jews and all the Gentiles and all the potential uh, conflict and, and differences of opinion, that he's able to speak into the church at Rome and let them know exactly what God's intention is for them. The good news Of Jesus Christ, its primary purpose is to teach the fundamental doctrine of salvation, the gospel, which literally means good news. Some of its unique features, primarily, is you'll notice when you read this, is it has a very logical flow. It is very linear, as opposed to the Book of Hebrews, which kind of bounces around. It's a little more difficult to outline. The Book of Romans is like Paul. The trial lawyer standing in a courtroom just methodically building his argument. And I'm going to show you that today. The theme is the righteousness of God has been revealed. And some of the key words are faith and righteousness, law and sin. Turn, if you have in your Bibles, to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen. Paul's just explained that he's his desire is to go to Rome and to visit the church at Rome, but he's not been able to do so. But he wants them to know it's not because he's ashamed of the gospel. That's not why he has been unable to come to Rome. And so in verse sixteen and seventeen he says this for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and to and also to the Greek for in it for in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This will be the verse the two verses that we want to challenge you and encourage you to memorize for next week because it 's here that Um, The theme of Romans is found. The righteousness of God has been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God has been revealed in that all men have been declared guilty before God. The righteousness of God has been revealed in that the Lord, in his grace and in his provision, has made a way for us, despite our sin, for us to have a right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of God is revealed in the power of the gospel that we now get to live lives that are transformed and be a light and confident ambassadors for Christ in this world. And so the righteousness of God is a, or, or is a phrase that you will see repeated throughout this book. A short outline for the book is pretty simple. In chapters 1 through 3, you'll, you'll see that, that Paul argues that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 through chapter 8, he's going to explain to us how we can have a right relationship with the Lord. And it focuses on salvation. In chapters 9 through 11, he talks about the sovereignty and providential will of God as it relates to the nation of Israel. And as is often Paul's custom in chapters 12 through 16, he's now going to turn to the so what, to the practical. Now that I've spent 11 chapters explaining the why and the what God has done for you, I'm now going to turn to the practical, the so what, how you now should live your life. He does the same thing in Colossians. He does the same thing in Ephesians. He builds his doctrine first, and then he talks about what our duty is before Christ. So let me walk you through, in just a few minutes, the logical flow, if you will, of this whole book. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul makes the argument that all men are without excuse, that we're all guilty, that we've all sinned against a perfect, righteous, and holy God. In chapter 1, you can anticipate the question that he asks, well, well, what about the Gentiles? Are, Are they guilty? And he goes, yes, they're guilty before God. Well, but they don't have the law. Well, but they have creation, which testifies to the goodness of God, the existence of God. Okay, well, if the Gentiles are guilty before God and they haven't responded to the revelation of creation, what about moral man? What about those who who strive to live a moral life? Because they're all guilty before God. Their conscience bears witness against them. Every man has a conscience, and every man, despite what his conscience tells him, chooses to ignore that and suppress that. And they, too, have rebelled against God. And you can almost anticipate the next question. Okay, all right, Paul, well, if the, I get it that the immoral Gentile, that he's guilty before God, they're bad people. Okay, and the moral man, I understand, Paul, that, that the moral man, he, he suppressed what his conscience has said against him. But what about the Jewish person? What about those who receive the promises of God, those in the covenant community of faith? The nation of Israel, certainly they are right by birth in the eyes of God. Those who have been circumcised and who try to follow the law. And that's where Paul just goes, no. Because God's standard gain is perfection. It's not a sliding scale. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he argues. All of us. And he said, he basically makes the argument here, a creation testifies against us. Our conscience testifies against us. The law of Moses testifies against us. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. The righteousness of God, gang, is a standard of perfection. That God is righteous, he's holy, he's perfect. And regardless of how we feel we may measure up to someone else that we certainly aren't as bad as that guy down the street. Paul goes, no, you don't get it. The standard is perfection of which we all fall short. All of us are in need of a savior. So in chapters one through three, he focuses on the sin of man, our condition that we've all been declared guilty. But then in beginning in chapter three, verse 21, you see, The probably the greatest pivotal point in all of scripture, because it's here that he begins to explain that despite the fact that we've all been found guilty before God, there is still a means by which we can have a right relationship with God. And it's found through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God has been revealed in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, he answers the question, how then can we have a right relationship with the Lord? Answer, by justification through faith. Justification by faith. Now, justification is one of those words that you hear and you go, oh man, come on. That's one of those big words that maybe we scratch our head and go, what does that mean? Justification simply means that we've been declared righteous. It's a legal term. It's as if we were to stand before a judge and in his Uh, his role as a judge, he declares us guilty of a crime we've committed. God has declared us guilty of a crime we've committed against him. We're guilty of sin. But yet there's this amazing thing that happens through Jesus and the cross and his resurrection. Because it's through the cross of Christ that there's a means by which we can actually, instead of being declared guilty, we can be declared guilty. Forgiven. But it's not based upon anything we've done, but what Christ has done for us. And so if it's, if it's possible that we can actually have a right relationship with God, not based on anything that we have done, but based solely on what Christ has done for us on the cross, then you can anticipate the questions that are going to come from that. And that's exactly what Paul addresses in chapter 4. The question of, all right, well then what about Abraham? Abraham certainly Abraham was saved by his good works. The the father of uh, of the Jewish nation, certainly we would look at Abraham and go, well, Paul, if we're saved by grace through faith, if we're we're declared righteous, not based on anything that we've done, but what Christ has done for us, then what are you saying about Abraham? And in chapter 4, he says, well, let me tell you about Abraham. Abraham wasn't saved by works. He wasn't saved by circumcision, which is a sign of the covenant community. He wasn't saved by his obedience to the law. He was saved by faith. And then in chapter 5, he tells us what the blessings are of having a relationship with God through faith. That when we place our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ and the provision of of the cross, there's now chapter 5 verse 1, peace with God. There's hope in the midst of our suffering. There's reconciliation with the one that we have offended. And there's new life for every believer. And so the question often becomes, whenever I share the gospel with someone, whatever I share with them, the good news of Jesus Christ It was true in Paul's day. It's true today. If you help someone understand, hey, that you were all sinners, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, the penalty of our sin is death. But there's a way in which you can be forgiven, but it has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. It has everything to do with whom you trust. When I explain that to people, inevitably their question is, now, wait a minute, are you telling me? Are you telling me? that I can be forgiven, but it has nothing to do with how many times I go to church, how much I give, how I live my life, where I go, what I choose not to do. It has everything to do with whom I trust. Well, then good gracious, are you telling me I can live however I want? I mean, should I just sin all the more? And that's exactly the, the question Paul picks up on in chapter 6. Right, are we then free to sin? And he goes, may it never be. May it never be. Because although you have been saved by grace through faith, if you understand the penalty that Christ paid for you and in your place, you would understand, gang, that he's freed us from a life of rebellion against the Lord and now empowered us to live a life which is pleasing to the Lord. He argues we've been baptized with Christ. And we're no longer slaves of unrighteousness, we're slaves of righteousness. That God has now freed us to a life of, that is pleasing to him. Well, then the next question he anticipates then is, well, what about the law of Moses? I mean, what are we to do with, with all that was promised to Moses in the Old Testament? And Paul argues because of the death of Christ, we're dead to the law. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. You see, the law, it's not the problem is not with the law, though. The law, Paul argues, is holy and it's good, but the law is weak. The law could point us and show us that we need a Savior. The law could show us that God is perfect, that he's righteous, and that he's good. But it reveals to us that we need a Savior. But it can't save us. But Jesus, through the cross and his resurrection, has the power to save. And so in chapter 8, he talks about the blessings of our new life in the Spirit, as opposed to the old life under the law. We, we have been saved by grace through faith. When we have been declared righteous, we're given freedom from sin and death. We're given new life in Christ. We're, given, we're heirs now with Christ. We can be sure of a future glory and a final victory. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's chapter 8 that is probably the, where the, more of the familiar verses come from Romans. It starts with 8, chapter 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it ends talking about how nothing separates us from the love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's this great picture of eternal security gain. That those of us who have been declared righteous can know that we have eternal life. It's just what 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, if you don't play a part in earning your salvation, you can't then undo your salvation by something that you do or don't do. It's a free gift that's given to you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so if all that's true, that that we stand before a God who says, you're declared guilty of sin, you're deserving of death forever to be separated from me, and physically you will die. Who's paid that penalty? He can't just overlook the sin. Otherwise, he would no longer be just. Someone has to pay the penalty. And the amazing news about the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is that God in the, his righteousness reveals to us that the means by which we can have a right relationship with him is that his son is the one who pays the penalty. His son is the one who takes our place and dies on the cross. His son is the one who three days later rises again. And when we trust in that provision, gang, it's God's Spirit who enters our hearts and gives us now the power to live no longer a wicked life, but one that's pleasing to the Lord and one where Jesus describes as living waters and abundance of joy. So then the next question must become to Paul's hearers is, well, then has God just forgotten Israel? What about the nation of Israel? If all this is true, if we're no longer under the law of Moses, we've been freed from sin and death, we've been empowered by his spirit, has he just forsaken Israel, all those promises? In chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul answers those questions. In chapter 9, he answers the question, has the Lord forsaken his promise to Israel? And the answer is no. And he looks back on the past promises to Israel. In chapter 10, he looks at what the Lord's presently doing in Israel. Does the Lord still care for Israel? Absolutely. And then he looks forward in chapter 11. Well, then what, is there a future for Israel? Will God ultimately fulfill all that he promised to Abraham and David? Yes. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty but the righteousness of God has been revealed to us in that despite our guilt, there is a means by which we can have a right relationship with Him. Justification by faith, being declared righteous. And in God's gospel, in the good news, in his plan, in his sovereignty, in his providential will, he has provided all this for us. He has not been caught by surprise, but he has been providentially at work and he is not and will not forsake Israel. But there's a future for Israel. In light of this marvelous truth then, how are we to live? And in 12 and 16, he spells that out. We're to present ourselves as living sacrifices. In chapter 12, how are we to serve the church? Chapter 13, how are we to serve under governmental authorities? 14 and 15, how are we to serve weaker brothers in the faith? And then in chapter 16, Paul talks about a legacy that he's going to live and challenges us to leave a godly legacy. As we learn God's word, live it out and lead others. That is Romans in about 15 minutes. So, gang, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to know the book of Romans chapter by chapter. It's like um, I had a, a good friend when I lived in Nacogdoches Right, I live in Dallas. I don't know. I have a lot of friends that work on their trucks and think it's fun to pull their, the engine out of their truck and rebuild it. But when you live in Nacogdoches, I had lots of friends that did that. And I lived in Nacogdoches, and this buddy of mine, this older gentleman, it was amazing. He had this uh, truck that ha- that he literally was given to him because as you drive down the road, that truck was it, weeds had grown up underneath the. Uh, the truck and grown through it. And um, it was just an old timey antique pickup truck. And he went to this old farmer and said, Hey, can I have your truck? You're, I mean, it's clearly nothing that you've looked at or touched in maybe a decade. And so the guy said, Sure. And I saw the picture of this truck just dust and dirt and weeds and trees hanging over it. I saw the beforehand. And then I saw in my friend's driveway a truck that many of us would have paid a high price to own. That he totally took the thing apart, rebuilt the engine, repolished it, painted it. It was a beautiful antique truck. And I just sat there and go, that is amazing. I go, how did you do that? Because, well, I mean, you have to, I had to take the whole engine apart and put it back together. And now the thing runs as good as new. And my hope is, is that you're able to take Romans 1 through 16, and you're able to understand how all those parts fit together. That you don't understand just a few verses that maybe you've memorized, but you understand the logical flow, the complete story of Romans. That you see how that engine fits together and works as one. And that you can walk someone through the book of Romans. That you could hide it in your heart and know the incredible Uh, gospel story that Christ has provided for you. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, thank you for these men. Thank you for the book of Romans. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to hide it in our hearts, that we would learn it, that it would fill our head. As Luther said, Lord, it'd be something that we meditate upon every day, that you'd help us to live it out, that Lord, we wouldn't just take it in and And it would be an intellectual exercise, but something, Father, that we would apply to every area of our life. If the gospel is true, Lord, then it is worthy of everything that we have and that we owe you all that we have. And so, Lord, would you help us to fall more in love with you as a result of this marvelous truth? And would you help us to be willing then to lead others and to point them to the one who offers hope and life and peace with you? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I have a few announcements to make real quick. um, Number one, I I know that parking is tough. Um, We have neighbors that we need to respect next door. And so we would ask, if you would, please come early. You can park in the west lot. You can park in the south lot, just south of the town center there. And you can park in the east lot, which is right behind our tower, but not past those double yellow lines. Um, That's just something that our neighbors have requested of us, and we want to honor and be respectful of that. If you can't find a parking space, then we would ask that you park on the fifth floor of the parking garage, um, which is just across the way there behind the corner bakery building. Um, If this is uh, your first time to summit and you have not signed up, we'd ask that you um, meet us in the loft and we'll put you in a small group. And the loft is just right up those stairs right there. And um, if you did register then you'll have a name tag, and on your name tag will be room numbers. And we're going to break from here, and I'm going to ask you to, to go and look on your name tag, and that's how you'll know where, uh, what group you're in. Um, unfortunately, our, uh, the side of our campus is under construction, and so we won't be able to take the sky bridge. So when you exit, if you will just be patient with one another, taking elevators up to the tower, um, you can take the stairs, and some of us are going to meet right around in this building. So again, if this is your first time or you haven't registered, if you would, go up those stairs to the loft and we'll take care of you, all right? Got some coffee out there for you and uh, grab a cup of coffee and you wanna be sure to grab some breakfast before you come to Summit so you won't be starving, all right? And um, this year, we're not gonna uh, have a big spread of food for you, but we are gonna give you a lot of caffeine so you'll stay awake, all right? All right, we'll see you guys next week.